today is the first Sunday of the new year, which uh, traditionally in the church uh, has been referred to often as the first Sunday after the Epiphany. And the Epiphany uh, being um, found in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 2, where God reveals himself uh, to the Magi, draws them by amazing means, by incredible grace, for them to go and find the Christ child uh, to worship him. And this is a, a symbol and a picture of God extending his saving grace to all nations, to all kinds of people. And um, maybe if you grew up in a liturgical church, then you're like, yes, you understand, you know, this is, you're in the zone right now. You're like the first Sunday of the Epiphany. This is uh, warm and beautiful territory for me. But if you grew up like I did, not with any concept of any of this at all, um, then this reading, which I'm about to do from Matthew chapter two, it might seem a little bit out of place because you're like, Paul, Christmas was last week. You're still (laughs) sitting in front of a tree. Uh, Why are we reading about uh, the wise men going to worship Jesus? Like it's it's over. But the funny thing is that it it isn't over uh, because sometimes we get educated on sort of the birth uh, accounts of Christ through the nativity scenes that we see. And those little nativity sets um, have some timeline problems, like the X-Men franchise. They put the wise men right there. They weren't there. It was a couple years later. Jesus was a little toddler, probably two or three years old, when the wise men actually showed up. So some of these nativity sets, you know, they, they throw us off. Maybe the wise men are there. Maybe the little drummer boy is there. Uh, maybe Santa Claus is bowing down, worshiping baby Jesus in some like weird multiverse mashup. Uh, perhaps that's going on. Or uh, maybe you got a, a nativity set like we did from uh, a place like, uh, I think we got ours from Costco, and it's this cute little set. Uh, but it's got like this, you know, inexplicable pigmentation problem. Jesus is a, a blonde, blue-eyed uh, little baby, and and uh, and there's nothing wrong with blonde-haired, blue-eyed babies because, of course, some of you are blonde-haired, blue-eyed babies, and they're very cute. And some of you have blonde-haired, blue-eyed babies, and they're very cute. Uh, but the thing is, if Jesus reminds you of Conrad or Henrika or Lars, then you bought the wrong nativity set, and you got to do what Susan did and get out some bronzer and just take care of baby Jesus and get yourself get that nativity set historically and ethnically accurate. But anyways, so. This all takes place a couple of years after the birth of Christ. And for those of you who might be joining us who are really new to the Bible and, and to the scriptures, I'm going to briefly pin this uh, to human history for you, okay? Um, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And uh, between the first book of the New Testament and the last book of the Old Testament, we call that the intertestamental period. And that was 400 years where God was not speaking to his people. And what was going on during that time in human history was a man named Alexander the Great took 35,000 soldiers and he went from Macedonia to India and he, at the tip of the sword, created the largest empire in the known world at that time. And uh, so it was, uh, he unified his empire through language and it was uh, a very simple form of Greek which is why the New Testament is written in Greek, even though, of course, Jesus and all the disciples and everybody spoke Hebrew or the cousin language, Aramaic. Um, the whole New Testament is written in Greek because Alexander the Great had Hellenized the entire known world, and that's why we have the New Testament in Greek. And so after he died, the Roman Empire rises, and the world that the Christ child was born into was uh, politically oppressed, economically strained, racially charged, and socially volatile which brings us to this moment 
in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, the first 12 verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. As we consider this text and unpack it a little bit and, and look to be encouraged through it, um, I'm going to break it down in three ways this morning. I want us to consider uh, three things. Firstly, that there's a clash of thrones here. Secondly, the epiphany of God's grace, you know, the eye-opening uh, nature of God's grace. And then thirdly, the ministry of reconciliation. So first, let's look at this clash of thrones. Now, um, the news of the king, the news that Christ the king had come, it brings two significantly different reactions. The Magi worshipped at Christ's throne. Herod sought to protect his. The Magi bent their knee to Christ's lordship. Herod rejected Christ to maintain his own lordship. The historian N.T. Wright has a, tells a story about he has a friend who preached a sermon he never forgot one time because his friend said, we ought to, we got to put Herod back in Christmas. And it was his cheeky way of saying that before the goodness of God's grace liberates you, it's, it's firstly going to confront you. And Herod is a picture of this confrontation um, because these two responses of either Worship at Christ's throne or defending your own throne, those are the only two responses to Jesus. Um, and so when you look at verse 2, the, the, the Magi actually ask Herod a very terrifying question. They look into the face of the king and they say, Where's the king? Which is another way of saying, It's not you. There is a throne we all ought to bow and bend our knee to. Uh, there is a divine standard by which we all ought to live our lives by. There is a cosmic law that certainly transcends all of your law, that, we, that is the orderly, wise guidance of the universe on all of our ethics and everything else, and it's not yours. That, there's nothing more terrifying than that, particularly if you have a proclivity to sort of being king, which, of course, Herod does. And so it says in verses 3 to 6, it says Herod was terrified, um, and it says all Jerusalem with him. I just want to draw your attention to that phrase, all Jerusalem with him. 
Um, what that that's referring to um, all Jerusalem doesn't mean all the men, women, and children. It means all of the leaders in Jerusalem who had been set up um, with with Herod, um, who was a puppet king. They'd all been given their power by Rome. What what that phrase Herod and all Jerusalem with him meant was Herod and all the people who had, were in power were deeply terrified. They were deeply troubled, deeply threatened. Um, they had this intense, uh, crippling anxiety and fear. It's, it's a super strong uh, use of language. In the Greek, the word is etarakfe, which means you're crippled with anxiety. That's what, it, that's what the word is. And why do they have this incredible anxiety? The anxiety is over losing their power. Anxiety is over losing their, their rule and their reign, being able to call the shots. Um, there, an announcement is being made that there is a king and it's not you. Uh, there is a law and it supersedes yours. And it come, this king is coming with a kingdom and a reign. It's all extremely uh, intimidating. And uh, it is astounding the things we can justify when we are driven by the crippling fear of losing control. Um, there's a historian, his name is Dr. Craig Blomberg. I make use of him all the time in these sermons. My pulpit is really crowded. By the way, I don't have any original thoughts. Everything that I say is derivative. And Dr. Craig Blomberg uh, estimates that uh, Bethlehem had around, the population was around 300 to 1,000 people. And so when Herod did this massacre of those, uh, uh, of those t- toddler children, two and under, they estimated it was around, somewhere around 20 children. And that's not to minimize it because of course it's horrific and the, and the massacre of one child is utterly horrific. The, the point that Dr. Blomberg brings up with this is that taking out 20 children is actually such a minor infraction uh, for Herod um, uh, that, that it it's, isn't something that's you know, well-documented outside of this New Testament account. He actually constantly had disputes with Caesar Augustus, and Augustus made a famous, Augustus made a famous pun about Herod, and the pun was this, it's easier to be Herod's, it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Because in the Greek, pig is hes and son is huios. So it was like a play on words. Hey, it's way safer to be as hes than as huios. was his way of saying, this guy is erratic and a crazy person. He will do anything to protect his throne. Herod, Herod just, could justify the massacre of children to keep his, to keep his power, to keep his throne. And um, on the surface, you and I read this text and we are nothing like Herod. In fact, we would read through this and utterly bypass everything about Herod because um, we can't really look at it and say, how, how could this uh, be a reflection of the darkness in the corners of my own heart? Um, on the surface, it's, we're nothing alike. But you know, if you pop the hood and look at the engine driving the sin, it's not original. The engine driving Herod's sin is the same engine driving Adam's sin. It's the same engine driving your sin. It's the same engine driving my sin. And it's the sin of self-rule. It's the commitment to self-rule and the things that we are willing to justify in the name of self-rule. It is the driving force, this, this misplaced self-love, right? this coronation of the ego. It is uh, the driving force behind every selfish, unloving, hurtful, and oppressive act that's, in, that's going on in our lives and in the world. And uh, it's that thing that rises up inside us that says, don't you dare tell me that what I think or what I want or what I choose or what I feel is wrong. It can't possibly be wrong because I'm the king and what the king wants is not wrong. This is at the core. And so this rejection of Jesus at the beginning of his life 
foreshadows the rejection of Christ and his crucifixion at the end of his life. Which, of course, he does to absolve us of all of our sin. Praise God. Um, Augustine once said that the city of the city is like the heart of man writ large. And uh, so whether it's in politics or it's church pulpits, um, the abuse of power um, is always you know, motivated by the desire to keep people under control and those around them who will sort of justify the injustice will do that because they want to keep their positions of power and control. That's what it means when it says Herod and all Jerusalem with him. They were freaked out. And we can see that same sin rolling uh, in the world today and even if we're honest in our own, in our own hearts and how it plays out. Now, when we dismiss the guidance of God's word in favor of our own word and we sort of grant our egos uh, or our wayward desires executive powers, in the moment that we're doing that, in the moment that we're sinning, um, then we, like Herod, are rejecting Christ as king um, because we don't like the idea uh, that God's uh, word and his way calls the shots in our lives. And I'm not saying, church, that every time you and I sin, um, we're denying Christ. What I'm saying is every time you and I sin, we are dethroning him. And when we dethrone him, we do that more than we, we realize. And this whole subject of Christ being king, it's come up this last year in church circles in really thoughtful and provocative ways because of this unprecedented <laughs> global fiasco that we've been enduring, this pandemic. Uh, it has thoroughly disturbed our way of worship. And so some, some of us, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, various churches, we've asked the provocative question, and rightly so, who is king? And what does it mean when the church doesn't gather physically, and we have to gather the way that we are gathering now? Um, what does that mean? What, is that, does, that, does it mean that we are bending our knee to Herod and we're saying Herod is king? Here's what I would like you to consider. Um, there's a big difference between uh, persecution and disruption, the targeted persecution of the church and kind of the disruption that we're all sort of experiencing. But uh, Jesus Christ is king. And because Jesus Christ is king, we as Christians desire to live in imitation of our king. And so the fact that here at Redeemer, not just us, but the other 40 churches in our presbytery across Canada have gathered physically uh, when we're able to do that and then gathered remotely like this when we're not able to do it. We are not bending our knee to say that Herod is king. We have chosen to gather and worship in this way and suffer, quite frankly, at the loss of so much of what we miss and cherish and are looking forward to again. We're willing to suffer for the sake of our neighbor because that is imitating Christ our king. We are gathering like this, worshiping Christ the king. Is it subpar? You better believe it. Do you wake up on Sunday mornings and say, when will, when will Zoom church be over? Trust me, friends. I've got to ramp up every Sunday morning to do it myself. Listen, Christ is king. And as we gather like this to, in a way of caring for uh, our city, seeking the flourishing of our neighbors, their livelihoods, whether it be uh, the first responders and the medical professionals working diligently in hospitals, or a whole litany of other reasons why gathering in this way um, is helping the city to flourish. It's because Christ is the king. In Romans 13, when the apostle says, seek, uh, uh, you know, submit to the government, he's not saying submit to the government because Rome is king. 
He's saying submit to the government because as much as you are a peaceable citizen seeking the flourishing of your city, you're demonstrating that Christ is king. In Matthew 5, when it says that we are to be salt and light in the earth and that our neighbors should look on our good works and glorify God in heaven, it's not because our good works put us in God's graces and save us. It's because Christ is king and our good works are just simply ways of glorifying Christ our king. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul explicitly says to the church in Colossus, Though I am not with you bodily, I am with you in spirit. So these gatherings, the last nine months, and I don't know how much longer they'll be, and I hope they're not long at all, but however long they happen to be, they're not physical, we're not gathered physically, but we are nonetheless, as the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 2, we are gathered in spirit, and um, we're suffering together, quite frankly. But, you know, it's not the church that's been, you know, targeted. Uh, our gatherings have not been targeted. Everybody's gatherings are targeted. Uh, the number one religion in Canada is hockey. And uh, all of those arenas are empty. And if those arenas were full of people sitting, you know, six feet apart from each other with masks on, 30% of the hockey arena all across Canada, then I'd be the first one to say, uh, I think we need to find a space and, and, uh, and do the same thing like our hockey friends. But the fact of the matter is, there is a cultural groan, and may we not echo the groaning, but may our union with Christ in the fullness of his spirit enable us to minister to those who are groaning. The fact of the matter is that in this difficult uh, time uh, that all of our neighbors are in, uh, we want to be able to uh, give care and uh, concern for them because to the degree that we do that, uh, we demonstrate that Christ is king. And so as we look forward to uh, this year, 2021, um, we very much need peace and perseverance and patience. We want uh, quiet in our hearts and uh, 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 relief in our minds. So a rest for our soul that flows from an idea of future security. And none of those things are found at any of our insufficient little thrones. They're only found at Christ's throne. We got to do what the Magi did, and that is bend our knee and worship Christ, which leads to the second thing, this epiphany of grace. The Magi, verse one, they, um, they were political advisors and leaders and rulers in, the, in various courts of, their, of the lands that they came from, uh, likely uh, Persia or surrounding region. And um, these, these Magi, they combined astronomical observation with astrological sort of speculations and they were they had political and religious prominence in their lands. But despite all of that, um, all of their powerful influence in their respective courts, they came by God's grace and they worshiped Jesus. And the, in other words, the reason I say all that is they were very unlikely worshipers. Uh, they were far from God. They were given this epiphany of the saving grace of God, drawn by the star, drawn by God's grace to worship the Christ. And God drawing the Magi from afar, it's a picture of how his grace is being extended to every nation. It's a picture of his grace towards us. The epiphany means that your eyes are open, you're conscious of something, you're aware of something, you understand something you didn't understand before. And so what happened to these magi is the gospel pattern. God comes to us in spite of us. Again, to borrow from Augustine, he'd said that from the beginning, God has been giving all that is God to all that is not God. This is the gracious God that we serve. And when they say in verse two, we've come to worship him, Worship is what happens when God draws you by his grace. Worship is what happens when you come down off the throne of your own smallness and you marvel at God's greatness. They bring these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, verse 11. The gold signifies this acknowledgement of his deity, his, 
uh, or his, of his of his um his his kingship because gold is the thing of kings and frankincense is an affirmation of his deity as the frankincense was burned by the high priests and Christ being a high priest and so they're acknowledging his kingship they're acknowledging his his uh, priestly uh, deity there's this picture of of uh, this being demonstrated and then myrrh is an interesting gift because myrrh is for embalming dead bodies so that is an interesting shower present this prophetically points to the mission of Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king, who would come for us. And Christ, unlike every other king, gets this shower gift of embalming myrrh at his, as, at his, uh, as a young toddler because he, unlike every other king in world history, is not going to come and bring his kingdom by accruing more power. He's going to establish his kingdom by laying down his power, laying down his very life. And so this worship that they, they do... They come, they say, we've come to worship. You know, worship involves singing, but it goes far beyond singing. One of the things we miss about having to do church this way is physically gathering, hearing each other's voices, singing together, and hearing the unity of the singing voices of the people of God. The people of God have always sung. Singing is part of worship. But you know, singing, I'm sorry, but worship goes far beyond singing because worship is, in its essence, about centering. It is about orienting. Worship is about centering and orienting around this thing that defines you. And so singing facilitates centering. Singing facilitates all of that orbering. What do you think that the Magi meant when they said, we've come to worship him? Do you think these pagans, uh, uh, as they were walking, they learned, uh, memorized some Hebrew deliverance songs and sang them together? Maybe, the text doesn't give us that, so I suppose I can't say no. But I'm saying it's highly unlikely that that's what they meant by we only came to worship is that they came to sing. Worship includes singing, but it, it goes far beyond it. And this is something that we can uh, be encouraged by as we worship in this, in this way over these next couple months until we can gather and hear one another's voices again, is that they centered around Christ. They oriented their very life around. They, they are defined by his kingship. And may that be said of us. And so when the Magi left the presence of Jesus, their worship therefore continued. They went back to their courts. They went back to their political and civil duties. They went back to these things and they then went about their daily lives centered and oriented around something new. Approaching their civic duties, going into the city to, uh, to uh, facilitate the flourishing of the city, motivated by something else at the center, Christ alone. And so may that be said of our worship. You know, when we left the downtown center before this all began and we left the downtown center, our worship was to continue through that week as we then go about our lives in the city, our very vocations being pictures of our worship uh, of our king. And the same is true today. Even though uh, our lives right now have been greatly disturbed and everything looks quite a bit different, the pandemic cannot stop the church, cannot stop the mission, uh, the mandate of the church. It is the power of worship in our lives. It is the fuel and the engine that drives the very way we go about our vocations and our, li- and, and, and our lives. And so let's close with this final thing leading into this ministry of reconciliation that you and I are called to. Reconciliation, for those of you new to uh, the Bible, um, it's just a word that we use in church that means like a relationship being reconciled, being brought together. And God does that by his grace. 
for us in Christ as we trust him. We are reconciled. And 1 Corinthians 5 says that through the church, God reconciles others. And so he does this to himself. And so in the same way that these magi were unlikely worshipers, unlikely ministers, you and I are unlikely worshipers, unlikely ministers, being sent out into the city by God so that we can, by his grace, draw many other unlikely worshipers and unlikely ministers who will come and worship at his throne as we do. And we, you and I are very unqualified to look at all the people at work and our neighbors and our friends and our lives. We are unqualified to look at them and say, you know, that person is likely to worship and that person is unlikely. And this person is likely and that one's not. So this person is a write-off and this one, we're unqualified. The, the beauty and the power of the epiphany of God to these magi says there, nobody is beyond the saving grasp of God's grace. Nobody is beyond the saving reach of God's grace. And none of us, church, are, have graduated and matured and become so sanctified that we're no longer in need of God's grace, which enables us to minister in a very humble way, confident way, bold way. And so only now it's not a star that God sends as a light into the world. It's you and I that he's sending. He's sending us. Matthew chapter 5. We are the salt and we are the light. And at this point, we get a little intimidated and you say, well, maybe not me. I don't know if I have that gift or that kind of personality, you know, whatever. Maybe I'm a bit of a mess. I have good news. All of us are a bit of a mess. Uh, The whole church, globally speaking, is God's beloved mess. And the message of the gospel is not, hey, look how together we are. The, the message of the church is not to point to itself. The job of salt and light is to accentuate and highlight another thing. You don't push back from the meal that you enjoyed at Christmas or on New Year's and go, oh, woo, that's salt. Ooh. Oh, the salt. The salt brings out the, uh, the, the glory of the other thing, points to brings out the flavor of the other thing. We are the salt. Christ is the thing. He is the good thing. If you go to Athens and you look up onto the mountain at night, if you're walking the streets of Athens and there are spotlights shining on the Oropagus, you'll look and you'll say, wow, look at those pillars. That is incredible. Wow, look at that architecture. That is magnificent. Nobody looks up there and goes, man, (laughs) I wonder how many lumens are in them, their spotlights. Nobody says that because they're not the point. The point is not the light. Church, you and I are the salt. You and I are the light. And we point to the thing, which is the glory of Jesus. This is the power and the beauty of the epiphany of God's grace. And so we are, of course, not the savior of the world, but we are also not passive observant observers in the world. We are unlikely worshipers, saved by grace, who have been given this ministry of reconciliation in the world. As we head into 2021, most of your colleagues at work or your, your colleagues at school or your friends and your neighbors, most of the people you know are groaning. And may God give us the grace to not just echo the groaning, but minister to those who are groaning. Give a defense for the hope and what wakes us up in the morning has the power to pull us out of our moments of groaning, pull us out of our melancholy, our sadness, and our loneliness. May we testify the goodness of God's grace and the indwelling power of his spirit. 
And so we bring our gifts to bear so we can care and bless our city in very ordinary and practical ways. You know, we as a church, we haven't sat by in, in 2020. Many of us, uh, we gathered together at bonfires and parks and walks and coffees outside. Now we're into colder months and some of those things are going to be more difficult, but there's been virtual coffees and text messages and phone calls and porch visits. We haven't sat by for a year and said, well, I guess we have to just resort to Zoom church. I mean, if, if you think that the church is a couple hours on Sunday morning, then you have bigger problems. We have not sat idly by. We've sought to care for each other. And may we continue to do that in this next year. If there is someone in this congregation that God has put on your heart and you want to reach out to them and send them a text or have a coffee with them or go for a walk outside and you don't have their contact information, you contact me. I will get it to you and you'll be able to connect. Nothing is stopping us. Nothing has stopped us. We continue to minister in the city. And I want to close with this uh, good news as we reflect on those kings uh, bowing down to Christ, as we reflect on the humility of Christ a few years earlier when he was born in that unsanitary manger. You know, our God loves us so much that he was willing to be born into an unsanitary mess, which is the confidence builder that we have, that we know that he will never leave us in seasons where we find ourselves in unsanitary mess. May we go out into this city as unlikely worshipers sharing of his good grace. Let's pray.